there's an, an enormous amount of skill involved in creating a good idea. And sometimes a good idea and a good print are like ships that that don't meet in the night, you know, and it's like, and sometimes you'll get it right. And it's, you know, does it have to be a, a beautifully printed thing to be a good idea? You look at Andy Warhol's stuff. I absolutely love his stuff. Loose as fuck. Squeegee Podcast Season 2. This podcast is sponsored by Blind Maggot, Magna Colors, M&R, Target Transfers, and Adobe Creative Suite. Yeah. My name is David Bonaguidi, uh, a.k.a. Real Hackney Dave. I'm not actually from Hackney. I'm from London, but I was I only live in Hackney. I work in Hackney. Uh, and I'm a printmaker, screen printer artist. I don't quite know what the correct term is. Um, and I work um, in this studio that you're probably familiar with. And um, I've only been doing it for since 2020 full time. Before that, I worked in advertising for a long time, like 30 odd, 35 years um, as a creative. But I just found it all a little bit overwhelming after after that long it just became such a shit business to be part of i just couldn't couldn't do it anymore unfortunately found a very a very good and fun way out which was doing what i do now yeah um i off the back of watching some of your videos um i'm like quite aware of like your journey up to this point of being in like quite a corporate world and then you just kind of had a bit of an epiphany and you thought let's just do what makes me happy and mm. i really like that the way you describe like how you came to this, like how you get, got into screen printing. It's a lot more romantic than um, probably the reality of it. I mean, I, you know, I joined advertising as a, as a 20 year old back in the eighties. And it was a, it was a, a very creative business. You didn't have any data. There was no information, you know, clients would want to sell a product and they'd go to an ad agency and then the ad agency would do what they wanted most of the time and then hope that it would work. And so there was a lot more, um, leeway to be creative and to try and do something that was mold breaking. There was also the thing of, in those days, everybody understood the the the, the value of doing something that was different. Mm. Whereas now, and the longer I stayed in there, the more mechanical it became. The more it became about filling in blanks and and being told what to do most of the time. And because there was still quite a lot of money to be spent by clients and lots of money to be made by agencies, all the costs sort of came down, and suddenly. It, there was a lot of trepidation and fear from everybody about don't do anything that pisses off the client. Don't do anything that challenges them in any way. And then suddenly all the power went back into the client's hands. Fair enough. You know, they're paying for everything, but there is also value in what, you know, when you get an architect in to design your house and you've got the money to do it nicely, listen, they yeah. might, have, they might have some really good ideas. Problem is now it's like you get an architect in, you tell him what the budget is. Um, you tell him how quickly you want it done. You tell him what materials you want to use and what value everything has. And then all of a sudden, they, they, there's no there's no scope for anything interesting. And you end up with a fucking house that looks like the inside of a Holiday Inn. And that's yeah. that's kind of the way the business has gone. So when I when I had my moment, it was a, I call it an epiphany, but it was a lot of people would probably call it a midlife crisis. I mean, I just got to the stage where I was 50, uh, living in London, Fortunately, being in a first world town like London, in a first world nation like the UK, having all these incredible choices, you know, I could choose what I did, what I ate, where I live, everything, you know, I had these incredible choices that millions of people, billions of people around the world don't have. And I was still miserable. 
And I just thought it's pathetic. And a lot of it was self-induced. You know, I've, I've made a choice to marry the woman I married who hated my guts. I've made a choice to employ loads of people at the office and bring in partners and all of whom I hated. I made a choice to do a deal with venture capital that fucking destroyed the company I'd set up. And so I felt ashamed, horribly, I felt ashamed about a lot of the decisions I made. And I think it was because I was never fully um, respectful of who I was. I think mm. this is one of the issues is that I, the analogy I use, you know, those those, those things they used to do a few years ago, but they're the faces of meth where they show. I like your analogies, by the way. I've got familiar pages. with a few of them. Go on. I want to know what this well, is. The faces of meth one where they show 12, 12 or 10 pictures of a woman who's been arrested since 1989 to 1999 mm. and on meth charges. And the first picture, she looked all right. And then the last picture, she looks absolutely awful, like she's about to die. And it's just a gradual decline. Oh, and what's interesting is yeah. when you look at it picture by picture, you don't really notice the decline. It's not so obvious. Whereas when you look at it from one year to 10 years, you go, for fuck's sake, what happened? Mm. And in a way, I think that's what happens to us as humans in business is that we just become acclimatized. We survive. We get through it. We learn to deal with it. And you suck up the pain and you deal with it. And um, I don't know. I just looked at the picture I was at year 10 and I just thought it's fucking not good enough. And then. I just thought, Christ, I'm working all the hours every weekend. My marriage is fucked. I hate everything I'm doing at work. And I just suddenly thought, feel like I'm standing in a burning building. And it's like, what do you do? You, you have two choices. You either stand and burn or you jump out the window. And um, and so it was a, it was just, it was a more of a survival thing, not some romantic, you know, I've made so much money in advertising and I couldn't afford to go off. I hadn't made any money in advertising. I lost it all. Mm. And so a lot of it was, what can I do that's going to make the last 20 years of my life fucking as much fun as possible? Because I've been suffering like a motherfucker for the last 35. Yeah. There's more to life than just doing what you're told and making money for some other fucker. You know, you can take control of the disco a little bit yourself and try and make the most of it. And rather, and, and it's not about playing, you know, being dangerous and not playing safe, but a lot of it is about ultimately what brings you fulfillment. You know, that's, the only purpose of being on this fucking big spinning ball with all the shit that we're going through now, like, you know, recessions, depressions, war, horrendous fucking climate change. You know, it's just, it's just the hardest time. Mm. So fucking hell, make sure you're doing something that at least makes exactly. you feel good, you know? Yeah. No, I... realisation that I had. And like I said, it was catastrophic. I mean, I wouldn't recommend going through a divorce you know, I lost all my stuff in my business when I walked out and then whatever was left, my ex-wife took. So it's kind of, it's been absolutely catastrophic, but I'm through the tunnel now and I feel like, you know, I've got my motorbike, my house, my truck, my job and my balls. And that's pretty much all I need. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's about as good as it can be. Um, I, I can't, yeah, I'm really relating to loads of the stuff you're saying. And it's like, there are certain parts that you can even build these little prisons for yourself. Yeah. And you can allow other people to dictate what you're working on. Totally. And then you kind of just get sucked into that and then you're known for doing that. And then you just kind of stay there. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, do you think like COVID just as like a way of pausing the whole country, do you think it woke a lot of people up and shook them and went reassess your life? Absolutely. I, I think COVID was one of the best things that could have happened. I mean, it's uh, horrendous, horrendous to say that. Um, I think it's no different from, you know, the world war that your grandparents or my parents would have gone through, which was, you know, catastrophic on a ground level, but it created lots of very positive change because it, you need to have that, it's almost like a, a butterfly or, or a lizard 
shedding its skin. I think we need to do that. And to look at the world we were in four years ago is incredible. We were boom, you know, you could everything was on tick, you know, you, there was like, don't pay now, pay later. It was just easy. We were all making money that we weren't making. Uh, we could all travel away, tra- travel around, do lots of things, eat out all the time. And then suddenly when when COVID came along, I think it it created a very interesting um, opportunity for us to look at ourselves a little bit more and think, right, well, I don't have to, don't have to work in a cool part of London anymore. Because if you said to people, right, there are the options. You can work in Slough or you can work in a cool part of London. Everyone would go, yeah, cool part of London. I want to work in Bethnal Green. And then you go, well, if you live, if you work in Bethnal Green, you're going to have to live in Mile End. And Mile End is really cool. And that means it's expensive. So you go, yeah, cool. I'll live in Mile End. And then all of a sudden, your rent dictates that. So you're earning fucking three grand a month or whatever it is. And you're, and the outgoings are 2999 so then you go, well, I'm, really, I'm cool, so I have to do cool things as well. And that means going on cool holidays and doing cool shit, and that costs me money. So where do I get the money from? Oh, now I have to be a bitch at work or be an arsehole at work to earn more money. And so everything... Someone is- else's bitch or yeah. an arsehole. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. it just becomes this weird thing where you, just because you want to live or work in a cool part of town doing a cool thing, it's like you have to be, you, you become something else. And I'm just as guilty. You know, every, I, I fell for all that bullshit as well. And I think what happened with COVID was suddenly it's like, well, it doesn't matter. if you where, Wherever you want to live, if you're from Bolton and you want to go back to Bolton because you like it there, as long as you've got internet access, you can pretend you're in London. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> and the whole idea of working in central London is the most alien thing I can ever imagine. And also, why would you want to work in a big office full of farting people with aircon? You just go, God, I, I really enjoyed you know, my time being at home being able to sit in my little yard, not a garden, but my little front yard, which is about the size of a kitchen table. But I quite like, I really enjoyed it because it gave me some sense of clarity and control again that I could sit there and go, I've got to say, I was shitting it, you know, when, when I went full time in January 2020, thinking, oh, matching numbers, 2020 vision, it's going to be amazing. And then, <laughs> you know, I got I got the virus in March and was sick for seven weeks. And I'm thinking, fucking, what have I done? I've decided to be an artist when the apocalypse has hit and people are sitting there fighting over bog paper and hoarding food, how is art going to be an important thing? But it was, it was a kind of, it was a real opener for me because I just thought, well, you just knuckle down, get on with it and make the best of a shit, shit moment. And it's been remarkable. And I've, you know, having all the experience that I've got, I suppose in life and in, in business, it just means that you can kind of navigate your way through it a little bit, a little bit better than somebody who hasn't got any experience, I suppose. But I, I think that, covid was or the pandemic and the and the end result and and the fact that we're going to be living with this for a long time has been um a real eye opener for everybody because it it makes you think about what you do what you want to do what makes you happy where how you spend your time how you spend your money and that's pretty fucking amazing because mm. not many events that could have challenged every every single aspect of your life mm. and i think it's got to be good um, one of the turning points that you spoke about in other interviews is like going for your first like screen printing course at Print Club. Mm. And so and then you talked about like you've learned a lot of your like skills or your technique through like talking to other printers. Yeah. If, if you were to like go and make something today, you probably have. What kind of techniques are you using? Are you just doing it very like freehand without any emulsion on the screen like I've seen you do or... Like, 
or are you using like um, found objects a lot with your maps? Yeah, you yeah. seem you seem like you've got quite a very eclectic, very eclectic yeah. taste and also very challenging because, um, uh, you know, I've come to it very late and so I'm playing catch up. You know, most of the people I'm working with in or competing with as an artist are in their 20s and 30s and they've got years ahead of them. Whereas I, I look at it, I think I've probably got 15 years of good making before I'm stupid, before I turn mental, you know, <laughs> which isn't very long. You know, but what are you? How old are you? What are you? I'm 34. 30. 30s, right? So you're, you're rounding got, that down. Dave. Yeah, but I can <laughs> round that down because when you're 34, that's less than 30. If you were 35, I would go, all right, you're, 30, you're in your 40s almost. My mum calls me 40. When you're in your 30 and you still look good, like, when you're my age, 58, that's virtually, that's almost, I'd say that's 65. But don't, don't you think all your time in advertising made you be able to, like, gave you the very, very difficult skill to learn of communicating effectively, like, minimalist? That's that's the brilliant thing that I learned from advertising. And when somebody asked me the other day, oh, you know, do you wish you'd sort of done all of this a little bit earlier? Of course, but the knowledge that I've got in running a business, the knowledge I've got in how to roll with a punch, because in advertising, you spend all day long being annihilated by clients, consumers, your staff, everybody. It's just a fucking very toxic industry where creativity and your yearning to do something interesting is just is just destroyed on an on an hourly basis so you don't burst into tears when you do something that's bad or you don't burst into tears when somebody says they don't like it you just go all right mate i'll do it again and you and you become very resilient if you do it for a long time um if i had to do it all over again i would do it in exactly the same way because i think i am a better artist for having been in advertising as long as i was um I think with the way that I like to work, you know, I remember when I first started at Print Club and it was an epiphany, you know, I went in there and I just thought, wow, I, I'm I'm studio, not boardroom. I like wearing dungarees. I like wearing no socks. I like having flip-flops in the summer. You're a no-sock crew. Like, yeah. I'm, not wearing, I'm not wearing any socks. Yeah. And it's, you know, and so I like being, you know, I'm scruffy. And when I used to dress up and put nice things on with a collar, you could walk me, sit me in an empty room for a day and I'd come out looking like I was covered in ink. It was just, I just attract dirt. Um, and so once you accept that your studio, it's very liberating. When you go into a studio, when I was in print club doing the class, I remember looking around and feeling a sense of excitement because we were doing something new and we were doing something analog and we were doing something with our hands and, and different and sort of feral. You know, you come up with an idea and it travels down through your body and you put it on a piece of paper and you walk out an hour later with something. <clears throat> no other business can do that. No. In advertising, it takes you a year to poop anything out. And then by the time you've done it for a year, it's the biggest load of shit you've ever heard of. And you're sick to death of looking at it because it's taken so long and cost so much money and so many compromises along the way. Whereas, you know, if you can think about, if you find something that works and people like it, there's nothing more rewarding than making it and then meeting somebody who likes it more than you and they're willing to give you some of their hard-earned money for it. I mean, it's a big yeah. thing. And, and you're providing a lovely... More story. than you. I like that. <laughs> yeah. That. Most artists would like to keep everything they make for themselves. But if somebody comes along and offers you money and because they like it more than you, sell it to them. And it's your right. And it's a great fucking job. And you should, you should be really proud that you've got a job where people pay you to do what you love doing. It's fucking amazing. And so I suppose the eclectic nature of everything I did that I do now was driven by the role that I had to do in advertising, which was who am I competing with? Am I as good as them? No. Am I as good as them? No. 
And then you sit there and go, right, if I want to compete in the top 10, I mean, one of the first things I did was go to two or three galleries and say, take me through your top 10 selling artists and look at them and mm. go, right, I'm not as good as the top five, but I think I'm better than number six. And then you sort of think, okay, <clears throat> how do I get better? And how do you create a niche? So if everyone else is doing that stuff, how do I do something that stands out a little bit more and be known for something? Because again, that's a simplest trick that you play in advertising, which is how do you stand out on the high street? How do you stand out on an ad break when your ad comes on TV? How do you stand out more than anybody else? How do you make it funnier, louder, noisier, better, more creative, whatever, more engaging, whatever it is? So you're always looking for that extra little 5, 10, 25%. Mm. And and I remember going into print club and seeing people who were brilliant printers, but their ideas were shit. Or other other galleries where they make these amazing pieces. Or the other way around. Or the they other way around. Great their ideas, ideas and shit and printer. They, they couldn't print them, and and so I thought I would have better ideas than other people, but I was a bad printer. So I worked out how to become a better printer, which is something anybody can learn. Mm -hmm. And then um, sort of discovered what I call my universe. It's the wanky phrase for it, but it's like, what are the things I'm good at do more of them. So when you when you see a wall full of 100 pieces of work, how do you how can I make sure that people when they see mine that they go it's mine? The same way that when you walk into a gallery and you see an Andy Warhol on the wall, doesn't matter whether it's Marilyn, Elvis, uh, a Coke bottle or whatever it is, you know it's him because there's, mm. a, there's something about the technique, there's something about that red thread of something or other that goes through every single bit of work he ever did that makes it his. Yes. And I think that's really essential for all artists is to have something that you're comfortable with and don't chase the money, which is what a lot of people do. Oh, someone else is doing words on maps. I don't know what, I'll do that as well because then I'll make some money. And it just it yeah. dissipates yeah. your brand. And so I was very, very controlled about making sure that the stuff I wanted to do was what I wanted to do and then sort of stick to it. And And so that challenge thing of, whether it's printing onto things I find. I mean, you know, if you could sort of sit there and go, what are the ingredients of my pie? It would be ephem found ephemera, whether it's um, interesting, you know, items, whether it's uh, metals or wood or maps or love letters, anything that I can print on that's already got a story to it. That's what I love mm. about printing onto maps. You get an empty, you get a blank map and put it on the table. It's one of the most um, emotional things ever because doesn't matter where you're from, you will go and have a look at it. Apart from the fact it's also a beautiful thing. They're beautiful things, drawings and artworks. But there's something really emotive about a place because that's where we sort of belong and that's where we've been and that's where we've done certain things. And so in a way I'm cheating because I'm finding things that already exist and then I'm making them just a little bit more relevant. And I find that really, I find that really exciting. And then it's, if, if I print onto... 50 maps of Cornwall that are all Bartholomew's maps that are all technically all the same. They're all different because they've all been owned by lots of different people. And some of them have been doodled on. Some of them have been stuck together. So when I print on 50, they're all completely different. And I love that thing of having stuff that's completely unique. So then when I print editions, how do I print an edition that even though they're all the same, how do I make them all different? And, mm. and I think everybody wants that. You know, when you go out and see a pair of boots in a magazine, you'd go, oh, I really like those kind of knee-length brown leather boots. But you'll know there's 20 companies that are all making them. So it's like, yeah. how do I get the ones that – so when I go out with all my mates, uh, seven of us aren't wearing the same boot. And it's yeah. everybody wants something that's unique that will tap into their identity and their vibe and feel different or better. And um, so that's the thing that drives me with a lot of the stuff. 
Um, there was something else you said. I think I don't know if it was a throwaway comment, but anyway, um, you kind of said something like nothing's unique anymore, and people actually don't want like unique. They just want reimagined things that they relate to. Yeah, I mean, I think you can. You've only got to look at every other form of culture, whether it's music, film, fashion. I think art is exactly the same. You know, in in advertising, everybody used to be obsessed by got to do something completely original. <clears throat> now, when you're when you've got an audience of a million people, fucking hell, man, why be original? Because you're gonna it's, a lot of people are gonna reject it. There are very very few people who are open to anything truly original because it means you're challenging, it means you're breaking something, you're pushing, you're rejecting something. A lot of people don't want that. So we used to do this thing, well, well what I call the the Oasis um, formula, which was Oasis when they broke on, you know, are a fucking great band. But it's a little bit like the Beatles. So you can listen to it and then your mum and dad can listen to it and goes, oh, that sounds just like Abbey Road because that's the kind of, you know, that's the flavour they wanted. Now, it was then wrapped up in a very interesting personality of these two mad brothers from up north that kind of wrapped itself in this Britpop thing, which was an, an added uh, formula. But then they kind of they kind of delivered it in a way that was very un-Beatles-like. It was like the Sex Pistols. So you'd see this angry man who was shouting and the brothers were always at war. And so the formula we had was a little bit of something you know, a little bit of something you don't, wrapped up in a lot of personality. And mm. I think you listen to the greatest music ever. It'll all be samples of stuff. It'll all be reimaginings. You know, the greatest director ever for me, Quentin Tarantino, every single thing he does is a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and I'll wrap it up in my personality and I'll deliver it in a different way. And it is yeah. something you know, something you don't, wrapped up in my personality. And I think it makes it very easy for people to then engage with it because you're not asking them to fucking challenge it. You're giving them something they already know. So you're taking their hand and it makes them feel familiar. And I think it was just a really good formula for, for me. Like I said, it's a very personal thing, but it worked for me. And we used to you know, you'd analyze the things that look at the things that work really, really well and try and understand why they work really well. And then if you can replicate that formula, everything, everything that's fucking amazing, very, very rarely the things come along. All right, Damien Hurst, when he first appeared and started doing very challenging work, he's not got an audience of a million people. He's only got to sell it to one person. Is it a success? You know, Jake and Dinos Chapman can sit there and do little with cock noses and, freak me out, those and two. bum are we? Got, it's oh. all fucking horrendous, but... Yeah. If they do it and a billion people hate it and one one little old woman in New York loves it, they've won. They've succeeded. And so... It's Where is she point. putting that little doll that has like a dick for a nose? Like, I know. Like, no, who's got I think, that in their house? Yeah, I know. But, it, but it's like nobody's got that in their house because they love it. They've got that in their house because they know that it shocks. And it's like, you know, that Saatchi show that, that made it all, which was the shock of the new. So it's like that set all of those guys up that they were in that their intention was to sit there and shock people now out of all the artists who are part of the shock of the new show maybe five or six of them have done really really well the rest of them have fallen mm. off a cliff and so it works for some people but it's not a formula that's going to work for everybody yeah i think it's also the kind of you know you've got to look at the kind of work you want to do and and i don't know you know how much money you've got to make because there are some artists I know who are very wealthy. Mum and dad made loads of money. Granny and granddad made loads of money in the slave trade. And, you know, it's like it's you. There's a guy yeah. know, whose dad owns half of the Isle of Mull. Good for you, mate. You know, he doesn't really have to work. He doesn't have to sit there like I do and go, 
fucking hell, man, I've got to earn like three grand this month just to cover my costs. Yeah. Can I can I ask you about that, though? Because you've come from like business and setting budgets and like working for clients and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like how do, how does that differ being like an advertiser person to like setting your price for an addition of prints? How do you even come to that figure? Well, we had a, a simple formula when, when, you know, I was paid a salary because it was my business and I paid tax at the point of salary. So you'd P-A-Y-E. When we employed freelancers, you'd have what is called a day rate. So you'd get somebody, you'd go, right, I need a, a creative team or a back-end developer or a website guy, a designer. And, you know, depending on what quality you wanted, some days I'd pay a, you know, a grand a day for some people. You'd pay... 200 200 a day for the for the lowest of the low now when you sit there and go okay the cheapest i'd pay for somebody to come in and do a very specialist job was 200 quid a day now if you're working at mcdonald's you're getting what 10 or an hour which is shit you got to do a 10 hour shift or whatever it is to get 120 quid um now in advertising you know the lowest price you're going to pay or in design the lowest price you're going to pay is 200 um and that would be real chicken chicken fodder. You know, you'd get somebody that was going to come up with 100 ideas, 999 of which would be fucking not very good. So you're hoping that you would discover some new talent. And so I used to just operate like that, where I go, uh, if my day rate, my day, I, I kind of go, right, as a, as a rough example, I go, my day rate is a grand. If somebody, if you, if somebody said to me, Dave, how much would it cost for you to be an escort? Now, this is not a shirty escort, but I'm just saying, just walk around with me and be my escort, be my partner for the day, I'd go, it costs you a grand a day or 500 a day, whatever it is you come to that you feel comfortable with. And then you sort of go, okay, how long does it take me to create a piece of work? So if I was a painter and I go, it takes me six days to do a painting and you go, all right, if I'm 500 quid a day and it takes me six days to do it, that's three grand. Now, straight off the bat, can I sell that painting for three grand? Probably not. So then I work back from, okay, if I do a painting or a one-off piece and then I do a screen print, which means I can make 50 or 100 or 500 of them, then you sort of go, okay, if I, if I could go, instead of three grand, if I can do 100 of them, I can charge maybe 100 quid. And if I've got 100 of them for 100 quid, that's 10 grand. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of go, okay, or if, what if I make do 100 of them and I charge 200 quid or 300 quid, 400 quid. And then all of a sudden the numbers start making sense. One of the biggest issues I think for artists is a total fear of what well, is imposter syndrome, which is inherent with everybody, which is you think you're no good. And two, the impact that that has on the money that you should be charging. So you think the best thing to do is charge it less and then I'd sell more. Now I know an artist who does six layer screen prints. Now, if you imagine with screen printing, six layers is six screens. Now the yeah. time, the time, well, again, back to the cost, how I do it is, so if somebody says to me, I want to commission a map with Steve Loves Mary over a map of Portsmouth, I'll go, I'll charge you 500 quid for that. Because I know that to get a clean screen, if my day rate is a thousand pounds, I start are you, off. Are your screens really dirty? And you're like, shit, I haven't got any. No, but if I start with a dry screen, no, I know, the, I know. I've I got know. to put. They're, they're all filthy. They're really yeah. good. <laughs> if I start with a dry screen, I've got to put emulsion on it. I've got to print out a positive. I've got to spend time on the computer creating that positive. I've then got to go and collect that positive. I've then got to expose it. I've then got to wash it out, um, dry it, and then I can print with it. And then I've got to strip it. 
and dry it. So if it goes dry, well as well. Yeah. And print it. So from a dry screen to a dry screen, I know that that'll take about six hours. And I work 12 hour days. So the way I do it is I go, I'll charge my charge out rate is a grand a day for escort prices. And I know that I can do two commissions a day <clears throat> for 500 quid each. So that kind of works out. I know I can do six commissions a day because I've got lots of screens and I can overlap them all. But the way I, if I was just being really plonky, dry screen to dry screen twice, 500 quid a pop. And yeah. so that gives me a price. And then I know that if you want a one-off, it's 500 quid. But if I do an addition of the same thing, so as an example, somebody said, uh, I'd like a commission a map of the Isle of Wight with the Isle of Shite on it. And I said, yeah, I can do that. Two colour, I'll do that for 500 quid. Did you get in trouble for that one? I don't know. No, people seem to like it. Really? No, yeah, no one gave you any? And this bloke lives on the Isle of Wight. So he right. lives on the Isle of Shite and he lives down there. But it was, um, it was something where I then said to him, okay, that's a pretty generic print. I could do a load of those. So I said, if you want one, it would cost you 500. If you let me do 10, I can do it for you for 360, which is what I normally sell my two color prints for. So then you can sit and do a deal with a bloke. He got it for 360. I printed another 20, which I sold for 360 and they all sold out. So I made more than, if he mm. just said, I, I want exclusivity for 500 quid, better for him to get it cheaper and then i make more money out of it so it's yeah. it's doing those little deals as well obviously if somebody comes along and says i want steve loves mary i'm not going to be able to sell that yeah and so you just kind of you just have to be really confident about your money but i remember bumping into an artist that um the affordable art fair a couple of years ago really good artist she does cyanotypes called joe de pair mm. <clears throat> and i looked at her pictures and she lives in the west indies which is nice she does these cyanotypes, so she's just got this beautiful blue. She said, I go down to the garden, I get a leaf out of my garden, which is going to be a lot more exotic than the little yard I've got in Hackney. She puts it, she puts it on the cyanotype paper, lets the sunlight expose on it for six hours or eight hours, and it, you get this sort of shifting, so you get this beautiful kind of melding of the – and it's a beautiful process. And she had these incredible prints, and she did some with leaves and some with flowers and some with um, – things like coral and interesting objects. And they looked absolutely stunning. And I said, how much are they? And she went, 300 quid. And I went, fucking they're way too cheap. They're really special, way too cheap. They're all one-offs. You'll never be able to do a similar one. So mm. I said, well, you just charge 900 quid. And she went, all right. She put 900 quid and they fucking sold. They all sold. Yeah. And it was just the kind of thing of, I think a lot of it is, oh, they're, they're really easy to make. But that's irrelevant. How do you charge? It's not about time. It's about idea. That was the thing that we always struggled with in advertising is we get paid every month by the client. Now, what if you come up with an idea in 30 seconds that transforms their business and makes them billionaires overnight? That might take you 10 seconds to come up with an idea. You can't charge for that. Yeah. I think with, with art, it's about value. When it's on the wall, how do you value that art? How much would you pay for it? How much would you pay for a beautiful objects how much would you pay for an amazing pair of jeans or a pair of shoes you know a bag you you would pay a certain you have a value in your head and i think sometimes pitching yourself with your when you create art almost come up with a number that you would pay and then double it and then see how that makes you feel yeah because ultimately you might only make 20 of those so how do you make the 20 people i know 50 really rich people so how can you get 20 people 
and in a way that's also how you can that's how you should build your brand you know work out how to get lots more followers on instagram how to get more people looking at your website and it's all about odds you might send out a post you might have 200 people look at it or like it from that you might get 10 people if that who would think i know what i'm going to go to the website i really want that piece i'll go to the website and look at it and then from those 10 you might get two that put it in their basket and you might get one that actually completes yeah. you know when i do fairs you think i've got a stall that's three do, you do, the, do you do things like the affordable art fair and stuff yeah, yeah. I, I do the affordable with galleries uh with jealous gallery and i'm doing it with a new gallery this year jealous. um yeah. i've done things with um I do the I've done the other art fair as well, which is quite good, which is you do it. You, you have to do it on your own as an artist. But again, you might think, God, they might have 3000 people might be coming through every day <clears throat> or 5000 people. I've got a stall this big. So I've got potentially 5000 people walking past. 4000 of a month don't give a fuck about my work. So already you've lost a, you know, you lost a fifth already. Well, I lost four fifths. So then you're like, how do I get those thousand people that might be remotely interested? Just look at them or they might walk over and then I might have to engage them. You might get 100 of those. And then from that 100, you know, you might only make five, six sales a day out of 5,000 potential. Now, obviously, if you're Charming Baker or you're Jake and Dinos Chapman and you do a release and every, or, or, you know, David Shrigley and everybody knows when I buy it for 800 quid on Monday, but it's seeing it as an Wednesday. asset, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's a different thing. You're not buying it because you like it. You're buying it because you know it's going to be worth more three days later and you can sell it. And so there's that. That's also another reality and an ambition for a lot of artists is how do you create added value to your work? And sometimes that's as plonky as having lots of followers on Instagram. Mm. And sometimes that's as plonky as having a really good website or working with certain galleries. And so a lot of it is perception, value, all of those intangible things that all have to come together to make but why do you why what kind of phone have you got i've got an iphone iphone yeah yeah. but no but it's the same so why would you decide on an iphone as opposed to a samsung or a a google pixel you know they're all effectively the same (laughs) apple just feels sexier right just feels more creative feels more you and you know they're all the same fucking product at the end of the day just wrapped Mm. differently and advertised differently and the brand values in the same way that where you live, what you eat, what you listen to, what you watch, you know, all of those things are events that have happened in your background and come to the foreground and make sense to you. And so I think you have to think like a brand. You you are, as an artist, you are a brand. Why, why should you be more important than anybody else? You know, during lockdown, I remember thinking, God, you know, we have, we'll have little, it's almost like a little, um, circular thing that we have strapped to our waist that have lots of little lights and it's like you know holidays and food and all the things that i like doing and when when it's when it's boom time everything's shining bright and you go oh i know i'm gonna go to the cinema let's go see that film or do this when there was when when the pandemic happened all of those lights went off and i left with yourself yeah (laughs) i've sat there with clients in the past when 9 11 happened every fucking client we had came in and said we're cutting our spend within two days Cutting our spend. Now that has that can have a fundamental effect on any business. You look at what's happening now with rising prices on everything. It's it's going to affect everybody. It's going to really bite hard. And so everybody's natural instinct with clients and brands is turn a tap off. Whereas my thing to those clients was everyone else is going to turn a tap off. You turn yours on full blast. How do I make 
my light brighter than everybody else's. Well, sometimes it's just by being there, doing something, yeah. talking, having more fun, doing whatever it is. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of artists struggle with because it means you have to engage your personality. And a lot of artists don't have those, you know, they feel awkward. We all feel it. We feel cautious. We feel imposters. And so once you get that confidence and you can feel that you can... You've had your fuck it, it haven't you? you yeah, I think yeah. out of anyone I've listened to, you've had your fuck it, let me just be happy now. Moment. Yeah, well, I kind of feel like I've earned it. I mean, the way I looked at it is I was in prison for a long time. I was married to somebody who hated my guts. I did a job to support her that I hated with people I fucking hated. And so it was just like, I've done my time now. Now it's all about me. I'm going to be really what I call positive selfish. I'm only going to do things that make me feel good. And I've not woken up in four years feeling stressed. I've not gone to bed feeling anxious. I've not woken up on a Monday feeling sick about having to go into an office. And I'm not gone home on a Friday feeling relieved that I'm out of work and then I've and then feeling sick that I've got to go home and share it with a woman who hates my gut. So it's been, like I said, it was catastrophic. It took a long time to clear, but it was it was a, a, a positive move, which has mm. made my life much, much better. Yeah. At least everyone else was having a cathartic time at the same time. So yeah, it was, you know, ultimately all the decisions I made benefited more than just me. It benefited lots of people. And um, you know, my wife and my kids and you know, they they they're in better spaces now because there's no fighting and there's no bickering and there's no toxic. I mean, it's just like when you're out of it, it's really weird. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you've been in a toxic relationship and you and you sort of is that, not no. with not with um anyone else, but I've really? been I've done it to myself. Like I've put myself in a lots of little individual toxic situations in business and stuff. Yeah. Like work, well, working you, for assholes. Yeah, and you understand that suddenly when you 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 sort of first you think it's always me, it's me. And there's something wrong with me and then you become gaslighted by these fuckers and then all of a sudden and then one day you wake up and you go what the fuck yeah make a decision and you leave and then you suddenly feel how relieved now that's just human nature you know humans are very good at surviving and that's part of our job and it's whether you're surviving living in a cave having to eat animals that you hunt every day or learning to survive by getting through the corporate world and working for wankers and dealing with arseholes and doing all that shit you don't want to do I mean it's the same fucking genetic thing mm. which is our survival instinct and yeah. there's something really amazing that i bet for a caveman if you suddenly said in the future you'll be living in a house with running water and gas and you won't have to catch animals you just walk to the shop and buy them you know you'd be you'd be stunned and also i think that you know that has an impact on how we live our lives and, and what we do mm. um can i can i talk a little bit more about like your processes again, like with the screen printing specifically and why you've chosen that as a medium. Because I'm assuming like in digital, you did a lot of like digital prints. Yeah. And then you'd get the proofs back and it would all be on the computer. But like, what is it about screen printing? And like, do you do, you do a lot of work with like choosing the papers and liking the way the ink goes on in layers and kind of can you talk about that like analog side of screen yeah i mean i mean analog is analog is the key word i mean you know when i worked in advertising you'd come up with hundreds of ideas 999 of them would be destroyed you get to make the worst idea out of the bunch because it was the only one that could survive the hundred lashes that everybody who's involved in the procedure and the process would apply to it and so you end up with music lift music because it was just <laughs> can't be a little can't be too much of that or too much of that so we'll just make vanilla ice cream because everybody Everybody doesn't hate vanilla ice cream. That's the way it used to work. <laughs> so with um, 
with the work, I, I'm very kind of casual. You know, I don't like overthinking stuff. I like the speed of everything. The thing that I loved about advertising was you're working on five or six different things at any one time and, and they had a lifespan. You know, you'd make it sometimes, if, depending on how long it took to make, but you'd make something and then it was gone. You know, it was just disappeared. And then I remember when I worked at Channel 4 after I left one of my agencies, um, even worse, you know, you'd have two weeks to make anything and it would be on air for four days and then it was gone. And so you'd make a thousand. When I worked in, in the previous ad agency, you'd make 300 things a year and it was like making Fabergé eggs, you know, you're all, oh, look at the finity. Whereas when I worked at Channel 4, it was just like fucking shit it out, man. It's like shit through a goose. And the guy <laughs> that was my boss said this very interesting thing. He said, we are in a river, a fast moving river of culture. Occasionally we'll do something where we're just throwing things over our shoulders and they'll create ripples. Most of the time they'll disappear. They'll hit the bottom of the, they'll hit the water and disappear without a trace. Occasionally you'll do something that will create ripples. Now, the first year that I was at Channel 4, they launched Sex in the City, Queer as Folk and Big Brother, which were the most, fun, to me, the most fundamental shows that Channel 4 has ever run because they were very, very niche, very, very Channel 4. No other channel in the country would have run those, but they were all massively successful mm. because they were, I think it was when Channel 4 had evolved and become more of an adult rather than a sort of petulant teenager. And so <clears throat> that attitude of um, doing something different, challenging in a way, but also mass production. And that's the thing I loved about advertising is you know, when you ran an ad or you did a picture, it appeared everywhere. And so screen printing felt like a very natural progression for me, which was, um, and it just because it happened to be the first thing that I attempted. I mean, I, I was thinking about, doing sculpture but I, I don't like that thing of spending a huge amount of time doing things at the minute there's a big piece there that just be nice with sequins on it fucking hell man it's taken me forever <laughs> i saw your comment it was something like it oh, says just be nice but you actually just want, want to fucking buy someone yeah yeah and it's and you know i've done it as screen i've done it as screen prints multiple times i've got a pile of a4 screen prints i've got 400 a4 screen prints that i'm going to do with glitter so I can do the mass production side of it, but I also like doing those one-off pieces that I've got one that's, you know, the shimmer, then there's another one made out of flowers or fake flowers. I'm also doing a big inflatable. And so I love that thing of the idea doesn't always have to exist in one place. It can be lots of different things. And mm. <clears throat> interestingly, I've got, for this show, I've got 50 artists who are all doing one-off pieces as well, some of whom will follow the rules and go, just be nice, others who will just do whatever they want. And rearrange the letters into whatever thing they want and so I, there's a kind of there's a casualness that i really like about mass production but ignoring all of the the normal traditional rules of mass production where everything has to be perfect mm. how do you make something feel a little bit loose and i think if you're confident and you're happy with that style i'm never going to be a technically a brilliant printer i can print pretty good but i find it exhausting because it requires so much concentration whereas i like trying stuff that's a little bit loose and and in a way that attitude is what kind of drives me to sort of try those things can i talk about your like that that difference between being technical and free yeah because like i've done high-end artwork for artists who like you know show it in galleries and sell it for a few grand yeah and i'm the poor bastard trying to get their digital image to look like <laughs> to be a screen print yeah and then it's all about like perfectionism and yeah. registration lining up and yeah. i i do enjoy that to a certain extent but if i was to make my the the most the, the best day possible for myself it's nothing to do with that it's 
just even getting like very basic shapes on screens and seeing what happens. Yeah. That's, that's like really like makes your heart pump and you're really yeah. excited and you're having, you're like in the zone and you're really like. Yeah, but yeah. that's because you are confident enough to sort of be cool about seeing what happens. And, you know, I look at a lot of those artists who are technically brilliant. They're like color copies when they come out. Yeah. I sort of just go, they're a little bit soulless. Whereas one of the things that I loved, I remember going to a gallery as on a school trip <clears throat> and seeing a very thick paint. I think it was a Francis Bacon. Oh, I love Francis and seeing, Bacon. And seeing a fingerprint in the ink, in the paint. And I remember mm. thinking, fucking hell, that's so cool. Most, a lot of, a lot of people would have gone, oh my God, it's so dirty. There's a fingerprint there. Um, whereas I loved it because it felt like that was his personality. That's the vibe you got. When you see pictures of Francis Bacon's studio. Yeah. <laughs> It yeah. looks like a fucking inside of a caravan, you know, it's just, a yeah. but you sort of go, it needed to be like that because when you see his paintings, you can't imagine that being done in a beautiful white space, you know, mm. you see the, the chaos of his life and the world that he lived in, his paintings absolutely reflect what he was all about. And I think that, that, that the process, you have to make that your own, you know, the fact that you're, you're having to do very, very, defined very precise pieces for other people is soulless for you because it's not you so yeah you i don't i don't do it anymore you're but... sort of rejecting it and you're able to just go you know what i just want to fucking do that or i just want to do that or just splat and i think that that's that's something that only comes from sort of confidence but also having the ability to not be too precious speak to a lot of artists who go oh i've done that in registration shit or the color wasn't quite what i wanted i said listen the only person who knows the color's not right is you when you stick it yeah. on the wall and put it in a frame and people go that picture's great not one of them is going to turn around and go it would have been so much better if she'd actually got the right color oh you do i have people's registration though don't you like i go mm. yeah I can't, I'm, I'm just a bit of an asshole but i i do spot yeah it. i do that as well but it's like <laughs> when i print just just for being an ass, not, yeah. not to like degrade of course, you know, art, but... when you're when you're a printer, it's like you know you you have you know that there's quite a lot of skill involved in creating a really good print, but there's quite there's an, an enormous amount of skill involved in creating a good idea, and sometimes mm. a good idea and a good print are like ships that that don't meet in the night, you know, and it's like and sometimes you'll get it right, and it's you know does it have to be a, a beautifully printed thing to be a good idea? You look at Andy Warhol's yeah. stuff, I absolutely love his stuff. Loose as fuck. You know, yeah. see it up close. Registration, what does that mean? He creates beautiful pieces. Now, all right, he had the benefit of his work being bought by collectors. So he could be loose because that was his style. And I think it's that's what I mean about find the style that suits you and then just embrace it and run with it. And you know, if you're messy, be messy and enjoy it. Do you do you put out um quite Oh, I want to ask you two questions. First of all, have you like completely cleared out what was it? Screen text like fluorescent pink. Yeah. Do you just basically you're the only person that orders that and you no. just like order it in bulk? No, and I, mean, then, I do. Like, I order it. Hoard it. I've ordered it in bulk. <laughs> I've got big, big pots of it. Um, lots of people use it, and I'm certainly not the first person to use it. The thing that's interesting is um, I'm doing. I do these things called splat prints, where I've worked with a photographer called Ben Kaufman who. <clears throat> had an amazing picture of this young girl and her dad I met her because her dad had bought a print off me and she came up with him to collect it and I followed her on Instagram and she's a mod she was like 15 at the time and she was a model and there was a picture on her Instagram that was just a brilliant brilliant shot and I asked her if I could use it for something and she said yes if you give me one of the prints and then she put me in touch with Ben 
and he said he'd let me do it if I gave him one of the prints. And so I wanted to do this thing where I printed onto gesso board and then dropped balloons full of my my fluoro red onto it. It took me a long time to get the right um, thickness of ink because sometimes it would be really runny and it would go all over the place. But it looked amazing when it hit first time. I'm currently trying to do something with a guy called Stuart Sample, who is the magician ink maker artist who created the blackest Stuart. Stuart Sample. Oh yeah, the really he's, he's created the blackest ink ever. And yeah, um, what's his name? Um, Anish Kapoor bought all rights to it, so no mm. one else on earth can use it. And so Stuart obviously went, yeah, fine, give me the money and you can have it. But then he created yes. the pinkest pink. He said everybody else, <laughs> everyone funny. on earth, everyone else on earth can buy it. Everyone on earth can buy it except for Anish Kapoor. So when he bought that, really nice. it said, you, you know, I am not Anish Kapoor. I'm not buying it on behalf of Anish Kapoor. This is only for me. This is where it needs to be sent. So I'm working with him at the minute to create not the colour pink because I've I think, you know, I don't want to own the colour, although I do like the idea of being like a pink version of Eve Klein. <clears throat> I want to I want to work with him to create the perfect consistency that when I drop it from two floors up, it splats but doesn't run everywhere. Because I'm doing mm. a new edition of these these of, of these girl prints with a different girl now. But I want to make sure that the pink is really fucking pink. But and so it's, I find that really exciting that I can go down yeah. and create a, a, the, the consistency of liquid that means I've put it in a tiny water balloon. And it will be perfect. And he's really excited yeah. about that because he's a paint nerd. And so we've just got this fun thing that you can do. It's like how you've done the, like, I saw the Harley Davidson printing oh, yeah. ages ago. Well, it seems like a while ago. Yeah. And then I never looked into who you were. So yeah. I feel bad about that now. But now I've like gone back, done my research. Now I'm linking the two. But you, you pulled the prints by attaching a squeegee. Do you think there's like a bit of like a, you, you you like all these kind of mechanisms, kind of like yeah, what it is, grommet machines. Yeah, something. can you create a story? It's always like, why mm. is that print? That print, the print is is anyone could have done that print. How do I own it a little bit more? How do I make it a little bit more interesting? How do I make it something that people might pass around? It's all about advertising. Yeah. So when I do a print that stays called that says "Stay weird, you fucking weirdo," I want people to hang it on their wall and go, "I'm a fucking weirdo, and I'm really proud to be a weirdo." But if I can create it in a way that is really stupid and pointless and weird, then it just adds a little bit more credibility to it. So the whole idea of coming in here, and we did it in here the first time, and I, I went and bought a metal ladder, I had to drive all the way to Slough to just get a metal ladder that I could have... Why is it always in Slough? Did you no, live in Slough? No, I don't know why. It's always Slough. <laughs> but um, I had to make this ladder and I had to cut it all apart and then put fins on the back of my motorbike and then attach a device that meant I could put a squeegee on. And then I built a... You can see that big red thing there, which is the yeah. So I had to get all these screens and build these massive screens. I mean, it's the stupidest thing you could ever fucking try. And the, the annoying thing is, is it works perfectly. So every print I did, <laughs> every print I did than a bench. was better than a bench. And it looked like I'd used an arm on it and they were all perfect. And I wanted them to be a bit shit. And so we had to sort of introduce shitness into it to make it look like I'd pulled it on a motorbike. And in a way, part of it was just, just film it being done on a motorbike because that's the only reason people would believe it. Mm. So then we did another version of it with a motorbike club that I'm a member of, and we printed some prints for them. And people were just like, why the fuck are you doing it like that? And my response is like, well, why not? Mm. It's just fun. I wanted to do one with where you could get a dog to pull a screen print. 
so you get a little sled where you'd have to weigh it right down. But I think there's something quite funny about a dog pulling a screen print or pulling a screen print on a trampoline, but it wouldn't work because the, the ink would be vertical. Imagine, the, imagine you're like this person who's gone to art school and everyone's always told you how great you are. And then your, your, your image is on the wall and everyone's like mm, analysing it. And then like the print that's done by a dog <laughs> sells more than yours. And you're just like... yeah. But that's or your funny. ego is ruined. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> so, there's something funny about that because yeah. when you look at a print on the wall and you go, that's not that interesting. But then when somebody says it's been done by a dog, hold on a minute, that's fucking interesting. You know, yeah. it's been done by a motorbike. How did he do that? Suddenly the technique overtakes the concept. And mm. that's the thing I love playing with is, you know, what's a good idea? What is a good idea? What's a good piece of music? When you look at David Bowie and the way that he used to write lyrics, you can either sit there and write poetry and then put it to music. The way he did it was he would just write all these words down, chop them up, and then stick the words together in a random format so that it was... Now, <clears throat> you can't turn around and say David Bowie's not a very good musician, great musician, but how do you create impact through the tools at your disposal? And sometimes mm -hmm. it's doing things that are wrong makes it right. Doing things that are stupid makes it clever. Doing things that are <clears throat> impossible makes it possible do, and doing that and then once you get into that routine of hold on a second i can do whatever the fuck i want so suddenly just doing stuff on paper is is kind of a little bit a little bit lame i mean as an example i i looked at you know you look at robert indiana when he did that brilliant love piece when you look at i love new york you know those are two of probably the most iconic graphic art and i love stuff with words in it you know because obviously i come from advertising but i love stuff that has that i love typography i love words and i love art and those two pieces are just so symbolic of everything you know if there was ever an image that would go love in the 20th century robert indiana if there was ever an image of new york i love new york in that yeah. form, everything about it now i sat there and thought well fucking hell every every great artist has always done something with love and i look at ben Ein, and he did Robert Indiana, like Robert Indiana, but he did it with his font. And you look at every single artist has done that. And I sat there a couple of years ago thinking, I need to do a print that says love. Now, my thing is also, is also that I don't want to do anything that Oliver Bonas is going to put in the shop. So if I do live, love, yeah. love I will kill myself on national television. Or on the I think I think that is, uh, this is, this is going to divide the audience, but fuck it. Um, do you know those little... Uh, Basically, if you've got Live, Laugh, Love and you've chosen that for your own home decor or those wooden signs that say home, yeah. that, oh. I, I wouldn't be able to, like, I'd be able to go around your house for a, a meal, yeah. but I could never have a long... But I'd want to go around there in the middle of the night and smash all the windows. Yeah, there's but, and so, nothing so I, worse than that. But, but it's interesting because I sort of sit there and go, well, I still want to, you know, even cool people will still want to have a poster with love on it. They would want to have a version of Live, Love, Laugh but they don't want to have those words because that's a bit lame. So I sat there and thought, okay, what would I do? Because I remember when I did, during the pandemic, um, you know, when home, I've done a print with home on it, but I've done say- You haven't home, made it out of question. It, yeah, so I did it on an old blueprint of a house and it said home, sweet fucking home because we were all locked in our houses. When I did the love one, I knew that I had a love print somewhere in me, but I didn't know what it was. And it all started by- this fucking photograph that a friend of mine sent me of a flea market that we used to go to together. He went and um, sent me a picture of him going, I'm here, you're not, you're a tosser. And in the background, 
was a table and on the floor next to the table was the tail end of a big bomb. And I remember saying to him, fucking hell, that looks cool. What's that? And he went, it looks like it's the tail end of a bomb. I said, how big is it? And he told me, and I got in touch, he got his phone, spoke to the bloke who owned it, I bought it off him, it got delivered here. Then I suddenly got this thought, I wonder what I can do with that. It looks really cool, what can I do with it? Then I thought, oh, I know what, I'm going to make a massive, I wonder what the top end of it looks like, the pointy bit with all the stuff in it. So I found that online, had this idea of, God, I'm going to make this massive freestanding bomb that stand on its legs, on its fins, and it would just look really cool. Just still didn't know what I was going to do with it. And then I thought, I know what, if I spray it gold and then put love on it, so it's a big love bomb, and it's <laughs> kind of interesting about finding old objects, whether they're maps or love letters or, you know, ephemera, that suddenly I've got, I've taken a massive bomb and I've turned it, instead of being a, a kill bomb, it's a love bomb. And then try to work out how to do it. And, of course, everything weighs a fuck of a lot because bombs are really heavy because they're metal and they're full of shit. So uh, it ended up being this thing that's now in this hotel in Enfield and it looks fucking amazing. And that's in a way it's, I think the best thing I've ever done because it started off as a weird process. I could have done it as a print, which I did as well, but just Mm. a bomb on it with love written on it. It's a print, but the fact that I've got it as a big actual bomb that weighs a ton, it looked fucking good. And then I did hand grenades as well that were all gold leaf and had love printed on them and they look really fucking cool. And they're things that live beyond a print. It becomes an item. And that's that's something that I found really interesting is that when the minute you stop thinking with the restriction of paper, what can I, what else can I do? Then it becomes really yeah. interesting because then it becomes about, well, I can do anything I want. And then, yeah. then you know, suddenly you can see why Damien Hurst can sit there and go, if you've got the momentum, I, I just want to get a shark and put it in a tank full of formaldehyde. I wouldn't know how to do that. Well, neither does Damien Hurst because he can because he he's Damien Hurst and he had momentum. He could sit there and say to somebody, "How do I do that?" and somebody will go off and work it out. Whereas yeah. we're not in that position. If you want to make, you know, something, you have to work it out yourself. And I find that really satisfying. There's something really cool about. I don't want to do live, love, laugh. I want to do my version of love bomb or love. So I do love bomb, real bomb, love bomb, hand grenades, love bomb, prints. Good. I never have to do that again. I feel like I've I've done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah and you know now think, I've got yeah. this obsession with inflatables. I want to do these. I want to do massive inflatables of North South. So have these letters, <laughs> huge, like you know, twenty five, thirty foot high, like castles, and then take it down to a park in Peckham and just have South, and then take a really nice, <laughs> and then take North up to a park in Highgate or wherever it is, Tottenham, and do the same thing, and they become photographs. So suddenly it's like. Is it art or is it photography? You know, when when Christo did all those things when he covered desert islands in the middle of, you know, the uh, South Seas and just put this beautiful pink fabric around a des- around an entire desert island or wrapped the the Lark de Triomphe. You know, it's an mm-hmm. amazing thing, but it lives as a photograph as well as a piece that you see in, in real life. And I just think that's really interesting as well. Yeah. Um, I think, do you know, like, I'm just trying to bring it back to people mm. who are actually going to be like listening to us talking and stuff. And like, they might be in a, in like a studio where they do have to do a lot of commission work that isn't what they want to be doing, but just keeps like the cash flow for the business Mm. and stuff. Um, I keep trying to communicate that it's important to have your own little kind of outlet somewhere just to be like, because you're probably in this profession as a printer or as like an artist or an advertiser or whatever, 
because you are artistic and then that's just been stifled by like the need to make money yeah like, um did you ever have like an outlet when you were in advertising do you think it would have been like a a good hobby for you to be able to like let off steam being a printer yeah inside? constantly i mean i was making stuff from you know my mum kept all my scrapbooks when i was a kid um <clears throat> when i worked in advertising i used to make clocks i used to get obsessed by finding old clock movements and I'd just get interesting bits of wood and then chip out a little cube and put a face on it. And I'd make these clocks out of interesting bits of wood that I'd find on a beach or. Oh, cool. Skip. So, still... so I was always making shit, but I love that upcycling was the thing that is still with me. You know, that's all, all I ever did. I remember I was obsessed with custom cars and I used to buy model kits of formula one cars and then I'd mm. kick tires and put the engine in the front rather than the back and then <laughs> cardboard, make the body and make a custom car. So it was always taking a bit of something there and adapting it. I think with when when you're someone's bitch, which effectively you are when you're working for somebody else and you're having to complete all the tick boxes, uh, I think that there's something that you can try really hard at, which is why would they code to me and not the three designers that sitting on either side of me? Now, sometimes it might be because your colorways are better or your design or your illustration style is better. But I think you can still put a little bit of your universe or your styling into stuff that you do for other people. <clears throat> so they come to you specifically. It's no different from when you've written a film script and you go, I really want to have Jake Gyllenhaal in it rather than someone else. Why would they pick Jake Gyllenhaal as opposed to anybody else? There'll be something about his personality. And I think he's still acting. He's still having to do a script that someone else has written, but they want him for a specific reason. And I think part of that is never losing your your confidence or your um your soul enough to just do what other people want always make sure there's a little bit of you in it so why would your thing why would it be better to use you than anybody else and i think yeah. sometimes that takes a little bit more work and it takes a little bit more discipline but it means that you know it helps your confidence so that when they come to you they come to you and say we'd really like you to do this but as an example i had um somebody come to me at the end of the last year and say we're part of belgravia and we really want to use you to do belgravia is always a good idea now normally <clears throat> oh, any, any other brand they just fucking do it they wouldn't even ask me they just do it and then i'd have a little piss i'd fuck around with them on instagram for a couple of weeks and it'll all be forgotten but this lot <laughs> actually said we'd really like you to do it and i think it's because they knew that i would fuck around with them if they did it with <laughs> yeah. so it was good and when i did it they said oh we want to do a mural with Belgrave is always a good idea. And I go, okay, I can do that. It's kind of what I'm, you're asking me to do something that I would have done anyway. So it's not too much of a challenge. Now, if they'd said to me, we want you to do, and I get it a lot with commissions when they come up and they say, oh, we really want you to do this, but we want you to do it in green. And I go, mate, I don't do green. I do pink, red, white, gold. If you want green, go to somebody else. And we want to print it on a picture of a photograph of somebody. I don't do that either. I do it on old things Matt, I've found. Yeah. So there's a guy that I'm doing a commission for who's got a pub. His, his daughter got in touch with me and said, he's got a pub in Shoreditch. He really likes your work. Can you go in and talk to him? So he's like, I want to do it. There's a bit of wall that he wants to print on. So I said, I'll do a 3D print with um, drink beer, eat crisps, talk shit. And he goes, well, I can't do that because it says shit. I said, yeah, you've got to be 18 to work. You've got to be 18 to be in a pub anyway. He says, no. So came out with another one. I said, right. I just said, I want to drink beer. I want to drink warm beer and eat crisps with you. So that's fine. That's part of what I would do. Yeah. And he says, I want to do another thing that's about the old king's head. And I said, well, who's 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 the king in the, on the pub? And he goes, well, it's not really any particular king. So I said, all right. So I've got an old 
really badly painted picture of Elvis. Right. Yeah, that's clever. And uh, and so I'll do. I'll put gold leaf. The old king's head is always a good idea, and it's just funny. But it's got my personality. But I'm still doing what he wants, which is he's got a print with the old king's head is always a good idea. But it's got my vibe to it. And then I sort of think, yeah. if you don't like it, fuck off somewhere else. Yeah. And part of it is having the confidence to sit there and go, look, maybe I'm not the right person for this. Be clear about what you want to do. Be clear about what you love doing. That will attract. Be, we used to call it being a lighthouse brand. How do you stand for something? How do you become a little bit bigger than everybody else you're competing with so that people specifically want to work with you? Mm. And you'll get a lot of people who'll come to you and say, oh, yeah, can, I really want you to do this thing for me. And you go, well, I can do that. Or if it's something you don't want to do, you just sit and go, well, it's not really what I do. Yeah. You need to find somebody else. And in fact, here's three other people that would probably be better at it than me. That sounds like all my emails at the moment. Yeah, but it's, it's like, it takes a no, lot of guts. It takes no. a lot of confidence to do that. And um, But it also takes a lot of, I think, there was a great saying I heard a long time ago, which was the people you say no to will define you. The people you say yes to, fucking hell. I mean, that defines you because you're just doing loads of shit for people you don't really like for not much money. The people you reject, <clears throat> you know, I remember having clients that come in and go, yeah, with Philip Morris, and you know that they would transform your business, but you've got to sell your ass to the devil, you know, and mm. those values and that integrity that you did in that moment will absolutely define you because they'll make you feel, at least I didn't sell out. I didn't do anything. And everyone's got a different level of sell out. You know, I've done things in the past for money that, you know, not that I'm ashamed of, but, you know, I would rather maybe not have done it, but sometimes yeah. needs must and you've got to do it and you learn from that. And so I think, yeah. You know, being having just putting that little bit of extra effort in to have a personality that's a little bit more than what they that they want, and then work out how to sell it to them. You know, they'll say this is what we want, and then you go, "All right, I've done what you want, but I've also done this, which I think is a little bit better and a little bit more interesting for these particular reasons. It's a bit more colourful, or it's got a little bit more personality, or it's a little bit whatever." And then, as long as you take them through the process and go, "Right, this is what you wanted. This is what I think you should buy." And there are five steps in between. You can have a conversation. Whereas if you just go, this is what we wanted. This is what I want to do. You're never going to meet in the middle. But also, likewise, if you say, this is what you wanted and this is what you've got, you're a fucking, you're not putting yeah. Yeah. No, I believe that. And that's, yeah. that's something that, again, with hindsight and a lot, a lot, a lot of experience in marketing and advertising, <clears throat> you have to do that. Every client will come to you knowing exactly what they want because when they come to you from having worked with another agency, they want exactly what they wanted last year that the other agency didn't give them. And so you then have to go, okay, we can do that. But we can also, over the next three or four years, let's work as a relationship and we'll work out how we can do stuff that's going to be even better for you. Now, that might mean re-change. As an example, there was a great story I heard, well, that happened to us. We got a phone call from Wrigley's one night and they said, oh, would you be interested in doing our advertising? We're like, yeah, love to. And they said, all right, well, we'll send you through a fax. It was back in the 90s. And they went, we'll send you through a fax. <laughs> and they sent through this fax and they said, thanks for agreeing to talk to us. Um, it's about a new TV campaign. And we're like, okay. And then they went, here are all the mandates. And then we got four uh -huh. pages of mandates. So number one was, it has to be a couple involved. So I don't know if you remember the old ad when it was like, they're on the Greyhound bus and it's a beautiful American couple and they have one stick. It was before it was like little. Oh, yeah. You, thought, you tore yeah. it and she took a bit and he took it. Yeah. And then they meet at the end and they kind of come together. 
And it was basically that story. That was the most successful ad they'd ever done for ages. And they were like, the ad agency couldn't do any more like that because it was just so formatted. And so they put it up for pitch and said, right, our other ad agency has just fallen off a cliff. Can you do it? But these are the, and so we're all like, yeah, great. Wrigley's could be really interesting. And then they go, and here's, here's the 43 things that you have to put in every Wrigley's ad that is basically the previous ad that they just made. Mm. And <clears throat> it was like, it has to be a couple. They have to be on a journey. There has to be love. There has to be this, there has to be that. And the last thing was this thing that they said, there has to be what's called the front-loading appreciation shot. And we were like... That's, that's, all, that's like the beginning the, of a... Yeah. What the fuck is the front-loading front loading appreciation shot? What is that? He says, oh, it's this bit at the end when they come together and they share a stick, they get a new stick each, and they put it on their teeth and then they bend it on the teeth. Do you remember they used to push it in with one finger and it would bend on the teeth and then they'd pop it in the mouth and chew it and then go, mm, that's amazing. Front-loading. So putting chewing gum in your mouth, some arsehole has gone, it's called a front loading, rather than side loading, which is when you put it in your ear or back loading, <laughs> when you push it onto the back of your head. Yeah. And I was like, the fucking fact that they called it front loading appreciation shot. It's really creepy. Yeah, it's really it's like... creepy. But that's like, the fact that they called it that was every reason why we didn't want to do it. And I just said, I just thought, look, mate, you've got a list of 35 things that you've got to put in the ad. Why don't you just get, you get anybody to shoot them for you in any yeah. order and it'll be your ad. Yeah. Why, why do you want to work with an ad agency that wants to come up with a new idea? And so we rejected it. But it was kind of interesting that the minute you get into that thing where we could have made a lot of money just doing that dog shit ad, mm. but it was better to say, fuck off. I don't want to waste my time and waste my emotional energy and do things that I don't want to do for too long because you have to do that. Everybody has to do that for a lot of time every day. There has to be some sense <clears throat> What are you doing that makes you feel really good and makes you feel special, makes you feel like you? Do you think that's what happened to you? You had like everyone's got like a jar of emotional energy and it doesn't replenish all the way to the top and you just burn through it through the advertising. Yeah. I'm a and then normally other people burn through it in like their whole career, but you burn through it so fast because you had to deal with so much bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also I'm an immigrant son. My mum's Danish and German. My dad's Italian. I'm born in London. I don't know whether I'm Danish. We're, we're passionate, but also we're, my dad's a restaurateur. My mum works in a shop. You know, I think we're all pleasers because you've got that terrifying thing of I'm new and I better look useful and better be nice and better look like I mean, like I can help because if I don't, somebody might ask me to leave. And so the minute you're a pleaser, you just spend your whole time blowing smoke up people's ass, and then it just becomes this awful thing where you're thinking about them way more than you're thinking about yourself. <laughs> it's interesting analogy to sort of think like there's a jar of all the fucks that I give and suddenly I just found myself one day with no more fucks. You know, I I drank all of my coffee allowance in the 80s. I smoked all of my fags in the 80s. Um, and so I don't do it anymore. And in a way, I kind of think exactly, you know, my empathy for strangers and my feeling and giving fucks for people I didn't really care about, I used it all up. Because I, yeah. I, made, I made lots and lots of people a fuck of a lot of money, not only employees, but clients with the work that I did. And I sort of suddenly thought, fucking, what am I getting out of this? What, just that nice, warm feeling that I've helped a load of people out. Now, when you're a pleaser, it's what you like to That's do. That's feed you, you yeah. Like, yeah, you like to feed people. And, you, and then I sort of sat and thought, you know what? I'm done with being a fucking pleaser. I want to please myself. I want to love myself. Yeah. Because before I was so obsessed about everybody else. And... I called it kind of positive selfish. The minute you sit there and go, what do I want to fucking do for once? 
I live in this world where I've got all these choices, but I'm miserable. What do I fucking want to do? What makes me feel good? Mm. The minute you recognise that there's that's the situation, and it's a unique situation because, like I said, I was a pleaser, which is not a good place to be. But being in control of what you do and making yourself happy in order to make others happy is a much better place. Whereas I was yeah. making my, I was quite happy to be absolutely miserable and make other people happy. But there's no fucking, there's nothing good comes of that. Yeah. Really I'm, I'm glad you ran out of fucks. Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. To... Unfortunately, I had like, the jar I had, the fucks that I had to give was enormous. It took me 35 <laughs> years to get through. A barrel of <laughs> Now I'm 58 and I'm getting all these other amazing fucks in that I can spend on myself. <laughs> I don't know where we're going with this metaphor, but it's kind of, it's, it's very true. It's very interesting. <laughs> um, I think I want to end there, Dave. I think you've got so much... I, I really hope someone watches it and it fast forwards or makes them reflect on what their own situation is and then just like lets them get out of it. Yeah. And, and if I could add a f- sort of final point, I mean, I talk about it a lot is, you know, you get 80 summers if you're lucky and summers in this country are shit apart from the one that we just had, but that's because we fucked it up. Yeah. So there's a kind of, you know, we're all running out of time and I just think, you know, you go through different periods of your life. In your, tw- in your teens, you're about having fun. In your 20s, you're about engaging. In your 30s, you're about building. In your 40s, you're about trying to fucking hold on to everything. And in your 50s, most of the time, you know, you're on the way out. In your 60s, you're falling apart. In your 70s, you're lucky. If you get to your 70s and you've still got all your bits working, good for you. But in your 80s, it's, it's curtains. Someone's going to turn the lights off. And so when you get to, when you get this kind of 50, fucking in any other job. It sounds like a horrible song. It does. It's not. Greg David, but like not through the yeah, weeks, really but through dark, the decades. Really dark. Um, and so it's like, just, just make sure you enjoy it. And it's, it, I think again, sort of getting back to your, the first thing that we talked about with the pandemic and the effect that that's had is think about what you fucking love doing. And if you love doing something and you're not doing it, have a think about why you're not doing it and then think about how you can do it. And, you know, the pandemic taught us a lot of stuff that you don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have mm. to be here. You've got internet access. Think about how you can shine as bright as possible by doing shit that's important to people. And then talk about the shit that you do and add value. And it's a, it's a it, for me, it was a very, very personal journey. But, you know, I had a lot of experience in doing that sort of stuff, so it didn't come too hard. For a lot of people who are shy, a lot of people who don't feel confident about shooting their mouths off, um, you know, you've got to you've got to come to terms with that. But that the more you do it, and the more you find a vibe that that suits you, I don't mind. I love shooting my mouth off, and I love being stupid, and I don't mind making myself the butt of my own jokes. I don't like you know slagging people off. I don't like being on Twitter where it's all really angry. I like having a laugh and making fun of myself, and I'm cool with that. And that helps my brand that I'm the happy-go-lucky idiot that just tries to make fun stuff. And that's that's absolutely the brand I like. Work out what you like and then work out how you can turn that into something you love doing because there is genuinely nothing better than getting up in the morning knowing that the only thing you're going to be doing is something that you, one, find really easy and two, fucking love more than anything yeah. else you've ever done. When you get to make something with your hands and your brain and an idea and you create something that when people see it on the wall or they see it in a space that they go, God, that's fucking great. I must have that. 
it's the most amazing thing you can ever do and there's no shame involved you know i know that in england we 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 love to sort of think oh the artist must suffer and we shouldn't be making money and if you make money you're a sellout that's a load of shit you know you work your ass off you come up with something really interesting if you did it as a product <clears throat> if you come up if you're the bloke or girl that invented cat's eyes good for you you've made the world a better place and you can make a shitload of money at it that's the way you got to think of it if you're making it better you deserve every penny you get if you're a musician and you make a great song that makes lots of people dance or makes lots of people cry at funerals or makes people excited at weddings good for you you've done something populism is not a bad thing find out what you love make sure you fucking do it and let it run the fuck over you. I mean, that, that brilliant Bukowski quote of find what you love and then let it kill you is absolutely right. Mm. And, <clears throat> you know, you get it right. And there's a very simple, there's a process and I'm, I'm actually writing a, I've written a, um, a presentation, which is how to turn your side hustle. And I hate that word, but how to turn your, but everyone uses it and into your career. It. It's a shorthand, yeah. but how to turn your side hustle into your career. And pretty much exactly what we've talked about here that are like, five or six steps that I went through and it might not apply to a lot of people but it might apply to some and it's a simple formula I mean it's you know it's just I mean even that great Arnold Schwarzenegger thing of early to bed early to rise work really hard and advertise I mean it's yeah you know it's, <laughs> why have I not heard that one before that's, that's there's a brilliant that thing one. that he does on YouTube when he talks about how he broke down his day 24 hour day to try and do four jobs and You'd say, right, I'd sleep for four hours and then I'd go to the gym for four hours and then I'd work in for six hours. And, then I'd, and, and it, was, it was like science. And one guy said to him, yeah, but I, I you know, I, I haven't got enough time. And his, his yeah. response was sleep faster. And you sort of go, yeah, that's the way of looking at it is if you're serious about it and you want to make it, don't forget, this is the fucking best job you will ever have. It'd be the best way you will spend your life. And if it's an Oliver Bonas quote, living your best life, how can you live your best life Fucking work at it. Work it out. Work out how you get there. Use all that information that you've got. But you've fucking got a graft. And then when you unlock it, you're sitting there carving a key. And then once you put that key in the lock and it works and you're in the, the, the beautiful land of wherever the fuck you want to be, mm. it's amazing. Because then every step is just brilliant and makes you better. And everything you do just makes you happier and better as a person and more confident as an artist or whatever it is you want to be. But a lot of it is is that snapping out of that inertia that we're all trapped in a lot of the time, snapping out of that uh, imposter syndrome, finding that confidence, doing stuff, surrounding yourself with people who are positive and going to make your life better, and then fucking work, work, mm. work. And then it's because it's not even work. I know. Well, I know. Doing something, it doesn't you feel to, like work when you're like sitting behind a desk in a bank where you've got to work for some fucker who's going to make your life difficult. You're doing stuff that's great. I mean, I'm in here from 8.30 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night, most nights, because can't think of anything else I'd rather do. Mm. And I love it. Yeah. Even sticking thousands of sequins onto a big lump of wood that I can't even work out how to get out <laughs> of my studio. I, I, I don't want this for you, but I kind of think like next time I go on your Instagram or something, there's going to be like half of them because you're just going to fucking rage on it. I can only do it literally. I can only do it for about 10 minutes because it's so fiddly and I've got to do it with these, I've got little pterodactyl arms and my fingers are really fat. <laughs> and big <laughs> wear gloves because you're not allowed don't want to get fingerprints all over them and it's like trying to separate all the discs because they're all stuck it's fucking do does my head i can only do like five minutes at a time and then I have to run around and 
I think I think it'd probably sell more if it was fucked up halfway, and then yeah, well, it'd be like a story. I've, There's I've your also, story. I've also got shitloads of extras because I didn't measure it correctly. So I've got thousands more sequins. So I'm going to be doing other stuff with it. But I don't know. I mean, it just drives me mad. But that's the brilliant thing. It's like I would still rather be doing this and driving myself <laughs> mad than working with a bunch of arseholes, sex pests, money grabbing, corrupt fuckers, and I have a real laugh. Yeah, cool. I really appreciate your time and this is really the you. best episode. Good luck, good luck with it. Good luck with everything.